welcome to account-based marketing. This podcast is designed as a collection of conversations with sales and marketing leaders sharing thoughts and practical tips for growing your most valuable customers. This series has been recorded as part of the launch to our customer buying index, where we codify 10 years of account-based marketing experience and provide a rolling pulse into the enterprise buying cycle. Hosted by me, Alicia Linden, founder and CEO at Momentum ABM. Welcome to Account-Based Marketing. This episode has been pre-recorded as part of a series for today's CBX 2020 Summit. So many of our customers are working with their clients to drive transformation and change. So I'm thrilled to be joined by Brian Hayes, financial services industry leader at VMware. Brian has a wealth of firsthand experience in driving transformation and change across businesses like HSBC, Barclays, ING and Gazprom. Brian, welcome. Great to have you with us. Thank you, Alicia, and uh, I'm really glad to be here. I thought we'd kick off with something a bit different. You've been involved in lots of transformations, lots of change programs, and I'm sure lots of investment decisions and working with vendors along the way. If you had to distill and summarize all of that experience down into into three words, what are the three words that would stand out for you in all of that experience? Just the three words. Okay. The three words would be challenging. Second word would be uh, collaborative. And the third word would be value. Okay. So challenging in the sense that it's a challenging experience as you go through the transformation or working with vendors has been challenging if we unpack that a little bit. I, I think a, a, it's a combination of both because you are looking to leverage the vendor in the, in the same way that the vendor is looking to leverage you. It's, it's, a, it's a mutual collaboration, as, as I said, the second word. So it's challenging because you are quite often pushing the envelope in terms of what can be done. And in most transformation programs, it's a continuous learning cycle. So you learn as much through um, mistakes and failure as you do through success and in fact the way you achieve great greater success is almost certainly by getting it wrong hopefully not too catastrophically as part of that process of going through that transformation got it and value is a word we hear a lot and when you think about transformations obviously businesses go through change transformation to drive more value more business impact whether it's growth to the top line or the bottom line what do you see as the role of vendors in change and transformation programs you've led it, it depends on the vendor uh, very, very much because if you look at a software company, they will spend a lot more on R&D than, than a buy-side organization. That's their job. So what you're trying to get is the way that you, either through monetization or real top-line value or real driving costs out or even cost avoidance, which some companies will, will look at, it's about how do you bring that value opportunity to, to me as a buyer and talk to me in a language that I understand that resonates with my organization and my industry in order for me to fully appreciate what what you're saying. That doesn't always happen, and I'm sure we'll talk about that, but that, that's the way forward. Yeah. So from a, a vendor perspective, if, if I'm a vendor and, and I'm talking to you about a transformation, I should be really focusing on leveraging my R&D expertise capability and bringing that insight and goodness to you as, as ideas and stimulus to help equip and enable any, any change you're driving. Yeah. So the way I would see it is that you are, as a vendor, you are looking pan industry, you are looking talking to lots of other organizations. And what I want you to do is to bring all that enrichment that you can. I will have an opinion on that because clearly we have our own networks too, but 
I have an opinion on that and I want you to bring all that capability and I want you to tell me how all of your capabilities connected together drive the best value for me within my industry. That, that, that's as simple as that. Looking back, Brian, at, at all of your experience on the buy side, have, has there been any vendor behaviour that surprised you the most? That you just thought, why did you do that? Or, or that's amazing, that's, that's brilliant. Well, I, I think, I think it, it falls into two camps. So the first camp would be the vendor that does their homework. So not just about me as someone that's influencing a purchase, because a purchase is a long-term thing. It's not, it's not buying something that's, that's going to be short-lived. If you change something, if you move from one product to another product, you're making a, a, you know, a five-year decision. So a vendor that really understands me, my, my, the culture of the organization I work in, where we are on the wheel, every organization is at a different point in the wheel. They're all trying to do the same things, but for very good reasons, they're at different points. So where, where is my company and how can they help me get the best outcome? So they do their homework, right? Quite often, you will get a vendor come and talk to you and they would, to, you know, to use my uh, old fashioned language, they will try and flog you something you already have. <laughs> as opposed to something I need yeah, and want. So the, the, the first one is really saying, we think you need this to move forward. The second one is, it looks like you're in the market for X. Would you like some more X? And they're cheaper. That's not good enough. If we look at any large scale changes organizations are taking, I think trusted partners is the utopia. Lots of vendors talk about getting to trusted partner status. Um, our, our data tells us that the only way to achieve that is exactly as you've described, understanding the customer. And the second part to that is delivering on the promise. So, so not just selling the dream, but actually making sure that you can follow through. But for very few vendors seem to get to this trusted partner status. What, what's your perspective on, on why that is? Well, I think everyone's got a different definition of what a trusted partner is and, <laughs> and, and what that means. Because what leverage does that give me in one direction and what do they expect in the opposite direction? So if we if you spend you know, a large amount of if you create a large amount of investment with an organization or you're or you're buying lots of their, their capability in their product, does that make you a trusted partner? You know, are they a trusted partner to me on the buy side because I'm allowing them or I'm engaging them in a way that I aren't engaging any others? You know, you hit upon a really good point, which was about the execution piece as part of that process. Trusted means all the way through. Mm -hmm. it's, it's no point just coming to the table with, I have a really great idea because a really great idea without execution is imagination and you, you have to be able to execute. And a lot of organizations would put execution over you know, a really well executed capability is better than a poorly executed great idea. Yeah, because you won't have that sustained relationship and actually you're just burning through clients as opposed to keeping them for, for that longer cycle. And particularly as what many vendors are shifting to more service-based revenues, uh, that's critical, isn't it? Absolutely. I think that's the big challenge that the, the buy side is becoming a lot more intelligent mm -hmm. than it perhaps was. So whether you're talking to procurement or strategic sourcing or purchasing or any combination therein, they are becoming a, you know, a lot more well-informed. And the, the sales side, the opposite side, the demand there is to become more aware, more conscious of the organization and what it wants to achieve. An outcome, the, the, the products are really secondary in some conversations. It's what can you do for me mm -hmm. to, to drive my business? 
then you can talk about the products. Yeah. And you mentioned, Brian, about the the wheel and understanding where customers are on that journey and, and their context before you, you go and even have a conversation with them. How else can vendors help um, organizations go through a transformation more effectively? So vendors have different capabilities depending on, on where you are going to engage them. So that could be a product set, that could be a bringing processes and, and, and the way that you, you drive an outcome from a technology investment perspective. So Vendors need to, in, in my opinion, they need to look at where that business is, what that business is openly say, stating as an ambition. And that could be we want to transform because we want a more digitally oriented customer um, experience, because we want to drive top line, because we feel that our cost income ratio is, needs improvement, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there, there are lots of things that the vendors can engage in. They can bring value. That, as I said before, they can bring that value to the table. I think that the vendors, obviously now I change sides of the desk. I now work for a vendor. So it puts me in this ironic situation that I've got to, you know, I've got to behave how I said I wanted other people to behave. But it's really engaging in a bold conversation rather than a transactional conversation. At the levels that you should be engaging in, that's where you, that in my opinion, it's, it's about bold, open conversation. Yeah, that, that will definitely help vendors stand out. And that insight wheel I was quite interested in because we see the single biggest roadblock in any large scale purchase um, IT investment taking place. If, if you are out of kilter with your customer strategy, i.e. They, they suddenly shift or pivot to a different direction, that will completely derail the deal on the table. How can vendors keep moving with their customers as they shift and pivot, particularly right now? Well, I think it's incumbent upon any vendor to, to work their network in that organization. There are lots of reasons why a deal will get delayed or get stalled that are outside of potentially even the buyer, but the buyer's influence, because there are just other activities that go on inside organizations. I used to advise the vendors, do you understand how we refer to money? How do we, when we talk about investment, do we talk about capital investment? Do we talk about, you know, a very accounting oriented way of looking at investment? Do they understand our buying cycles? You can become more predictive in terms of what's going to happen when and what that, those processes are. And the vendor then can actually engage around that to support that purchase through that process. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's, I think people forget that. I think yeah. it's, you don't, I can say yes, it, I'm one yes of the other 10 that have to come by, behind me. And that the vendor can help that process, it can expedite that process, it can also drop a clangor in that process if it's not careful. Yeah, we've seen some pretty poor facilitation of uh, large enterprise deals. So it's, it's definitely a known problem. So you, your, your insight really would be know enough about your customer, be in step with their, their own organization, understand the language, be connected from a, a networking perspective, but also understand that it's it's not all down to one person and it is the bigger organization that they need to factor in. Absolutely. I can give you two examples where the, the result was exactly the same. And actually one was the fault of a procurement view and the second was a, the fault of a, of a vendor. So in this particular instance, it was a very well-known consulting company that had been into an organization where I was running um, service and operations. And as part of that process, they had specified all of the processes by which we would operate. So any event of X, you know, your, your whole service management processes. And they presented this to me as a, as a fait accompli. I'd arrived late into the organization at the point where it, it was basically being done. And they said, oh, this is, this is all done. 
this is, you know, the process is done, it's all been signed off. And I said, well, I, I, if I don't agree with it, well, no, no, it's been done. So I said, okay. And I looked through, and this was on a video conference, and I looked through and said, okay, can you make one minor change? And they said, yes. And I said, I'd like you to be on the call out tree for escalation overnight if there is a service related issue. And the, the, the partner from that company gave me a very quizzical look as if to say, well, I've never been put on a call out tree before. So why do you, why do you want me on a call out tree? I said, because you'll only get phoned up once and then you'll fix it. Because you're, you're basically saying, this is my textbook way of doing it, but you're not the one that's gonna get woken up at four o'clock in the morning. Now, similarly, I worked for a very different organization and actually I suffered where procurement were driven by a set of KPIs. They didn't involve me as the client of the service and they had reduced the cost of the contract. The only option a vendor had was to reduce the coverage. So I asked my head of procurement to be on the call out tree and they said, I've never been on a call out tree, why do I need to be on a call out tree? So I said, well, in this particular instance, if we're calling you out, my boss is on the call and the head of global trading is on the call and you can explain to him what a wonderful deal you cut. Mm -hmm. And they will give you honest and open feedback about the value of that cut in that contract. Yeah, it's quite interesting when you look at and unpack how many people are involved in that buying cycle and actually those that actually understand what they're procuring versus the the impact of things like service continuity yeah. or even to the business itself. I think talking about understanding the customer, often vendors, partners, they're, they're, they're mostly concerned about what they have to sell, as, as you touched on earlier, and sometimes lose sight of the value they're bringing to their own customers. You talked about joining the dots. Are there any tips that you could give to vendors on how they should go about doing that? Is it about having more conversations, the insight you talked about, what, what else could they be doing to really help facilitate that sale? So I think it's, it's fair to say that the vendor needs to understand um, in their own language, but a language that resonates with the client, where they fit, where, where their value sits in that overall jigsaw that a client will be working with. And and the opportunity that it can create. So the value could be we've got lots of this experience and actually we think we can help you leverage that experience in a way that works for you. Not the cookie cutter doesn't really work because the hard work is in, in the hard work, if that makes any sense, right? <laughs> I, I hate to say it that way. It's, it's just simply not that repeatable. So understanding where your value is, understanding how you can create that value, work with the client who has a completely, you know, in my old role, I didn't know what I would be doing the next day because I worked in operations. So, you, you, you know, every day was a new day. So understand that the client has got a competing set of priorities and particularly at the moment with what's going on in the world and then work with that. So actually the client feels it's his outcome or her outcome that they can drive with the vendor to, to support them. So I think, I think for me, that's where vendors and where I've engaged vendors have had the best impact for them. My favorite question used to be to ask my vendors was, who is the best client that you deal with? And it can't be based upon revenue. And invariably, they would say it's the client that's pushing their envelope mm -hmm. in terms of their product and really getting value out, what they've, out of what they've got not what they're selling new. And it goes back to not just a one size fits all, as you say, everyone's on, at a different point in the trajectory and they're trying to achieve different things. How do they apply that technology in, in the rest of their stack to get value from it? Yeah, absolutely. 
And if you look at any type of deal, we see that one of the things that really hurts vendors is when customers don't really understand what it is they're trying to sell, whether they've either made it too complex or they've tried to go in with a kind of one size fits all. What's your experience been in this space from a understanding, messaging, some of the content that you've seen come from vendors? I think that the important thing here is the consistency of messaging. Okay. So in any large scale deal, a vendor will be connected from engineering through to senior management. They'll have executive sponsors. So quite rightly, they'll be working top down and bottom up. It's never as easy as this man says, we've got to do this. And it's never easy as this is the best thing I've ever seen. Can we go and buy loads of it? It's just not that simple. But it's the consistency of messaging. It's the consistency of the outcome that can be achieved such that when you get two halves of the same coin in the room internally within your own organization they don't disagree with each other because mm-hmm. that, that definitely does happen yeah yeah i think when you look at buying committees and groups of individuals that you're trying to rally if they're going off and networking and telling a different story to different individuals they've got breaks in promises again and things aren't delivered as as you set out yeah absolutely From a a vendor perspective, often we talk to a lot of our clients about inspiring their customers, um, taking best practice, taking market insight, as you touched on, to to their clients in a relevant and meaningful way. Our index shows almost 60% of purchases want vendors to come and inspire them with new ideas. Have you seen much of it actually go on? I think it's very much dependent upon the organisation that you're in. I would like to think that it's more evident than not, I, I don't necessarily agree with the sixty percent. So that's not my experience. Okay. Um, I think I think some organisations are very. I can say this now because I'm on the other side of the fence. I think some organisations are very much driven by certain egos in terms of we know best and we know where you fit, and then and they're not interested in the value that can be that can be brought to the table. So they become quite blinkered in in some respects. However. I think it is incumbent upon the vendors to weather that storm and to push and be resilient in their engagement. Because if they are right, then they absolutely owe it to themselves to push as hard as they possibly can through any route to get that messaging inside the organisation. Got it. And from an individual perspective, you mentioned some some people are, are not necessarily as open to new ideas or, or looking externally for inspiration. Um, we also see different roles having a different appetite to to risk and, and that bold idea that you talked about earlier of, of taking big ideas, bold ideas into accounts. Does that always resonate with buyers? I think there is an element of risk and, and, that, and risk could be influenced by a whole different set of um, events. So, you wouldn't see people at the moment necessarily or over the last few months making significant changes in direction of their technology. So they wouldn't be going from apples to oranges. Okay, They they may not like apples, but they understand them. They understand what they would be able to do with them and their skill set and their processes are built around being able to operate them. So in we talked at the start about you know everyone is now working from home. They would have gone for more of their what they've got rather than change. You, you wouldn't have got it through most large organisations' risk committees, to be fair, because it's too risky. Yeah, too, too big a change, too big a shift. Yeah, a- absolutely. And what about the process when you're working with vendors and, and you've been on the buy side as part of these transformation and change programmes? What about envisioning kind of the end state, envisioning the value that you'll get from, from investments? Our, our research tells us that customers want to see vendors share more of this and they want to see the end state, they want to see the value. Are there some practical ways that you've seen this come to life from from third parties, yes, and I and I find that quite it's it's quite ironic 
okay? Because I think, I think clients in the main in certain industry sectors are very poor at determining whether they've actually got the value at the investment. Right. But to get around that, they say, right, we want you to share the risk. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. So, you know, and I, and, I, and I do believe vendors are, because of the necessity to move away from a transaction on a product to an outcome, to really drive in something that can deliver more more value, a broader value proposition. I think that's absolutely true that the vendors will get smarter and better at doing that than actually some of the clients. It's difficult if, a, if, a, if you get an investment budget of X and then you have to go back to your investment board and say, we didn't do it. You have to explain why. It also causes everyone to question any future investment. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, so that side of it, that that commercial acumen, is is challenging. I know from my recent experience here at, at VMware, you know, some of the work that we do is is very engaging in terms of being able to elaborate to a client the value that we can bring. That said, it's absolutely dependent upon the client as well. It, we can't do it without the client. We can't do it to the client. We have to work it through with the client. So main takeaway there for vendors would be co-create work with your clients to get to that end state value. Don't yep. do not do it in a dark room yep. and actually take into context that the end outcome isn't always clear on, on the buy side either. And what, what about ROI, Brian? Have you seen many vendors share some of those R, R return on investment models with, with you on the buy side or is, has that been very much led by you? We've seen it. We've certainly seen it in terms of, I've seen it in terms of some of the commercial deals that I've constructed at previous organisations. Um, so classically, where you are looking for a multiplier on that investment. But then that comes back into the earlier comment I made about understanding how your client accounts for their investment, accounts for their you know, their headwind costs or their tail costs. or That's all very much part of that conversation. I had a, I had a really interesting call internally where someone said reverse ROI. And I, and I said, what's reverse ROI? Oh, you mean cost avoidance? You can't. <laughs> Yeah, you know, that that you can't count that. You know, I can't save money I've never spent or never planned to. So it's it's a very difficult conversation to get into. But lots of programs of work do have very very good cost avoidance mechanisms within them. Yet yeah, that that won't impact your share price. And a lot of your experience, Brian, has been in FS banking and. We've, we see a, a big difference when you look at financial services, particularly the tier one banks in the way they're, they're operating and approaching major technology investments. One data point that we've got is C-suites in FS accounts are 81% and are more likely to be identifying a need for, for change or a need for investment in, in technology, which is much more prominent than it is in any other industry. Why do you think this is? Is it they're more risk averse? Does the C-suite are more in touch with how they're leveraging technology for competitive advantage? I think I, I think it's any well, it's, it's a number of things. It's it's not just one thing. I think within FS, the financial services industry, and I'm, I'm going to be very macro at this level and talk about it rather than specific nuances of any organisation or or any subsection within that. But it was very product oriented. You, know, you 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 was you were sold products, and and actually the client became the last you concerned yourself with. As a result of the rise of the fintechs and the, and the unicorn type of organisations that have really driven an exceptional customer experience, that has really caused the traditional more traditional banks to look at how they do digital. Should they buy? Should they build? Some that have built have now sold. <laughs> Some that were tried to buy. 
you know, try to buy, have done that successfully. Some that have done it internally is not as successfully not moved as fast because you're you're still operating in that culture within that traditional banking organisation. What's evident to I think to banks and 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 the C level that sits within banks is technology is absolutely key to to providing that customer experience. Customer experience drives customer retention. Having unlocking your data, so we won't talk about legacy and all of that sort of stuff, but unlocking your data enables that hyper-personalization of services. It, it's also, you know, dare I say, the millennials, they don't use branches, they won't use branches. My children probably never been in a branch in their entire life. But that that millennial impact and as that rolls forward in, in retail banking is going to have a dramatic effect. So technology is the enabler. Technology yeah. is, is you know, whether you're talking about technology and AI and machine learning to help drive your cybersecurity processes, how can you put a super, super personalize the banking engagement? There's a, an organization, uh, one of the German fintechs, uh, eight minutes to onboard you as a client. Fantastic. Yeah. Be unheard of without technology, right? <laughs> Beat that. Beat that. Yeah. yeah. That's fantastic. And uh, buying experience is so different from country to country as well, depending on which country is leading a particular investment. We've seen, for example, in the US, buying teams are traditionally smaller than they are compared to, to the UK. And you've worked at US, UK, Dutch, Russian <laughs> yep. headquartered firms. What What's the difference that you've seen in approach when it comes to a large technology investment? Take someone like Gazprom versus ING, completely different cultures. They are completely different cultures. So the investment processes tend to be not dissimilar. It's just the stages of validation that you go through and the empowerment that exists or doesn't exist in terms of getting that investment through. And, and very much dependent upon on what that type of investment is so who can authorize what what type of investment are you making is it if, if i'm buying more of the same like is that really an investment or is that a purchasing act if i'm suddenly saying we're going to buy something completely different a new technology that process will generally have a very well refined and documented process from an architectural sign off from a, a, a commercial sign off validation of the organization you know what type of organization are they you know, sustainability ethics all of those conversations then come into that bringing a new organization into the fold so validation sign off are the two big differences you've seen from yeah. one organization to the yeah. next yes and i think that it's also very much instrumental around what are you trying to do so if, if you're in a so if you're in an organization that's hurtling forwards where pace is the key Having a very slow procurement process is not going to help you go very, very quickly. However, if you're in an organization where actually we want to be very cost conscious, I really want you to say cost spend constraint, but you know, we really need to control our spending, then you will put processes in the way that can restrict that spending. That, it's that it's that's the way that organizations quite rightly work it may not feel right when you're in the organization because you know, because you want to do things you want to deliver things you have an outcome <laughs> yeah. and you're you know you're you're you know you're running connected to elastic bands you're a man on a mission yeah yeah i think that's for for us in every buying process there's you've, you've got to build consensus and you've got to justify the decision at every stage and account to account we see big differences in how much effort goes in into doing those two things at different stages depending on the culture and, and who the business is 
You've also, Brian, procured large outsourcing investments or partnerships as well as vendors. Have you felt the buying experience has been different with an outsourcer compared to a, a standard technology vendor? An outsourcer tends to be different because you are very much really looking at the outcome. So you're, you're subscribed for an outcome. So that could be, you see all these people here that do all this type of work. I'm going to outsource all that capability to you. So you need to come up with a plan. We need to come up with a plan collectively that transfers that skill-based process ownership to you in the best and most efficient time frame. Whereas if it's you're, you're moving to buy more capability from a product set, then how do I ensure I get the, I'm exploiting that technology to the best possible value? So the sort of conversation that I've had in the past is, you know, we've bought all this software, we're paying for all this software. Are we really exploiting this software? Because we're paying for it somewhere. So the classic shelfware type conversation, which is I've got all this stuff, but I, I won't use it a month for Sundays. There's definitely been a, a lot of that that's happened over the years of, of salespeople selling selling what they had in the trunk and then uh, disappearing and not necessarily looking at... You mean that's where their sales compensation plans motivated them to do that? <laughs> Am I allowed to say that, even though I work for a vendor now? I, I, think, that's, I think that's absolutely true. And I think... I think that tide has changed. Yeah. And I think moving to consumption models will, will absolutely drive that away. Yeah. Do you think that that's the biggest thing that's shifted it over the past, say, decade? I mean, compared to when we started, definitely feels like the buy side has got more experienced. Vendors themselves are sharpening their value exchange. But I think the way consumption models and some of the, the contracts are now set up, they're, they're driving a, a more sustained, we've got to get value out of this. We've got to sweat the investment. I think there's there's an absolute necessity to sweat the investment and, and ensure you get the value. I think that there is an underestimation about how much intelligence sits on the buy side. And I don't mean that disrespectfully to either party. I sat on a call yesterday where certain individuals were talking about this is a compelling event for the client. We need to create a compelling event in order that they do something. Right. And I said, okay, you do understand that the client knows it's a compelling event and the language they use internally is leverage mm -hmm. it, it's not just as simple as oh we think this is a compelling event for you the client says i know when you're in the quarter is i know where you are financially yes. i know what you're challenged by and i'm going to use that to negotiate so i'm going to use all of the things that you think you can bring to the table to push me to go to do to engage mm -hmm. and buy and i'm going to use that every single one of those cards to play back to you as leverage to secure the best commercial deal i possibly Got it. And now, now you flipped to the dark side. Has your view of vendors changed? Is it are you taking some of those learnings and best practices in, into VMware and, and and fighting the calls for better selling, better customer engagement? I think one of the reasons I joined VMware, and, and this is not to, to sell VMware, is because I really, really, I, I really, really believe in the culture of the company and the way they operate. We are a product company. We've got great products. We've got a great history of leading the market in certain areas, and we're now we're now expanding that. And part of the reason I joined was because I'd like to think that credibility and capabilities we've had in our where people really do observe us most of all in terms of virtualization we can we can move much further now in terms of the application space which is becoming more and more evident internally i've been here four months and i and i probably apologize twice a day on calls because i remind people so what what's the benefit to the client <laughs> um, yeah. and are you talking about the client and, and where's the client in this conversation regardless of what we want to tell the client Mm -hmm. what do you think the client wants to hear and needs to hear, which, which may not, may be the same story, 
It may be the same story, but that, that, that may be not. And I often say, right, okay, use me as the use me as the client conversation. Why would I be interested? So why VMware? You know, and, and those and those very basics are as important to any organization that could be engaged with client. Why us? Why now? Why? Mm-hmm. And put the customer at the center. Absolutely. Don't, don't forget a- the customers. A- a- absolutely. It's lovely that you want to sh- sell me new shiny things, but actually I'm not in the market for new shiny things. So Fantastic. And Brian, any top tips for other vendors? What, what would your top, top tip be um, for vendors thinking how can they work with their customers more effectively? We, we've covered a lot today. Um, what would your number one takeaway be? You know, in my career, I've been very lucky. I've worked with some of the biggest vendors around and, and we've had some great We've had some great engagements and we've, we've done lots of great things. I think that I think it's about bringing your capability and awareness to the table and listening. That's the mix. That's the giddy mix. If you if you take what you, you have as an organization and you can listen to me or to my organization on a buy side and then map those together and come back with something that says, actually, this is where we can drive value. This is where we can help you. Absolutely. We see, we see it everywhere. And I think that where, where we've seen sales teams, marketing teams be more effective, understanding the customer and actually not just taking them the, the beige or the vanilla <laughs> thing they take to everybody and actually really considering the, the future value, joining those dots, that, that's where the impact comes from. Brian, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today. This has been a hugely fascinating conversation and uh, I look forward to seeing you very soon. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. This podcast is brought to you by Momentum ABM, the account-based marketing consultancy, transforming how sales and marketing teams grow their biggest customers. You can learn more at MomentumABM.com.